Hello, it's been a while since we've had one of these a dive into the archives of Amford Evangelical Church sermons. If you're listening to this, I hope that means you're part of Amford Evangelical Church. And if you're part of Amford Evangelical Church, then I hope that means you're part of a rooted group. Rooted groups are our, what can I call them? Bible study groups, home groups, community groups, mission groups. They're all these things rolled into one where we learn to to go deeper with Jesus, to know Jesus more and seek to make Jesus more known together. And this term, if you're listening to this in real time, we're planning on studying together the Epistle of James, the book of James in the New Testament. Um, A letter, not a particularly long letter, not a particularly short letter, but we're going to take our time as we make our way through bit by bit up until Christmas. Now, as providence would have it, James is a book that myself, Sammy Davis, and former pastor Matt Bounds preached through together a number of years ago. And so what we're going to do to help us as we wade through the letter that James wrote the early church is to listen to those various sermons as and when they're relevant. We hope to stick them up every Tuesday here on the podcast to help you think through and consider what the book is all about before you study it together. Okay, this is a reasonably long sermon back in the day when I thought it was okay to keep on prattling on for 45 minutes, but there's a lot of sort of uh, groundwork to be laid in in James. So I hope that serves you. I hope this helps you prepare for your rooted groups. And I hope really more than anything, it helps you to grow. This term, we want to be thinking about growing in our faith as we're rooted deep in Jesus, that we wouldn't stay little children, but we would be growing and maturing and knowing Jesus more and being more like him. And this is just one small part of helping us all to achieve that. God bless you as you listen along. Every day when I fire up my laptop and I click open my web browser, the same thing faces me every day, but it's usually a different thing. The same thing faces me every day, it's a different thing. My homepage is Google, and any of you who use Google will know most days Google have what they call a Google Doodle. Okay, that's an interesting thing that they do. They kind of change their logo a little bit to celebrate something. So, for example, if you go onto Google on the 1st of March in the UK, generally there's some kind of daffodil or dragon motif going on with the Google logo because they're celebrating St. David's Day. Or if you go on uh, Valentine's Day, you know, Google will be spelt with two hearts for the O's and things like that. On Friday, I went on and there was this uh, Google Doodle that caused me to click on it because sometimes you don't know what on earth is going on, what it is that they're celebrating or remembering. Click on it and find out a little bit more. And uh, the Google Doodle was all about the Google Doodle. It's quite difficult to say, actually, especially with a sore throat. The Google Doodle was all about the penny black. Now, I've heard of the penny black, but I didn't really know much about it. The penny black, I clicked on it, and it said, celebrating the 175th anniversary of the issue of the very first penny black. Now, some of the things they celebrate are random. But as I went and I looked at the penny black, I thought to myself, do you know what? There are probably people out there who have been handed, passed down generation by generation, stamp collections, and they've got no idea of the value of the things that are in their possessions. 
I used to collect stamps when I was a little bit younger. I never actually learned anything to do with them. I just used to cut the stamps off letters and put them away, and I thought I was a stamp collector. But it's possible, you know, that maybe even back then, somebody passed me on a stamp and, and didn't necessarily tell me what it was, and I wouldn't have any idea of the worth of it. You could have a penny black in your collection, and you think, well, one pence, even with inflation, that's not worth very much. But you know they can be worth 3,000, 4,000 pounds. Um, it's really possible to own one of those stamps that we were celebrating on Friday. We all were. I, mean, I know you were, you crazy bunch. Um, and, to, and to really not know the value of what's there right in front of you. Now, the book of James. The book of James. A penny black got to do with the book of James. Well, I think if anybody's ever heard anything spoken about the book of James before, there's a significant chance that the thing that you've heard is that quote from Martin Luther. And he very famously, the great reformer, had this to say about James's epistle. He called it that right strawy epistle. That right strawy epistle. Now, I've got no idea what that means. But he wasn't being positive. He wasn't saying, oh, that strawy epistle. It was, it was kind of said with a bad taste in his mouth. It's clear he wasn't a fan. He also said, less memorably, that this book, the epistle of James, was totally devoid of any evangelical character. Martin Luther, this man who made great rediscoveries in the Christian faith, who kind of sparked into flames the the fire of reformation across Europe, looked at the book of James, something that had been in Christians' Bibles for centuries upon centuries, the man who had rediscovered the doctrines of grace and, and kind of made his life verse something like Galatians 3.11, no one relies on the law to be justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The guy who'd seen that looks to the book of James and says, well, that's a right strawy epistle. You know, ugh, dirty taste. No evangelical character. Now that shows us that it's possible To be someone who has something of immense value in front of you and to not recognize what's actually there, what what is actually worth. Just like the penny black, Martin Luther had this God-breathed, Holy Spirit-inspired, written book of the Bible, and he couldn't see the value in it. We don't want you to be a church like that. We want you to be people who, when you see it, you're informed. You know, whether Wikipedia age, I can click on the picture of a penny black and I can see that it's now worth three to four thousand pounds if it's in mint condition. We want you guys over the next ten weeks to be able to come back time and time again to the book of James and say, Do you know what? I see the value here. Unlike that great man Martin Luther, I can see why the book of James is so important to the Christian life. How it is a book written by God, given by God to his church. That's the first thing it shows us. The second thing it shows us is that actually even heroes of the faith make mistakes. Sometimes we make mistakes in the Christian life. We make wrong judgments. We make wrong actions. And we think, oh, woe is me if only I was like such and such, some great man in church history. Even Martin Luther made mistakes. I bet you he's in glory and he's thinking, I wish I hadn't said that about the book of James. What a, what a plonker I've been. He'd said it in a German accent, but it would have been to that same effect. Finally, I think that shows us Martin Luther coming at it and saying it's a right strawy epistle. That our expectations as we travel through the book of James for 10 weeks should be that it's going to be difficult. 
But actually, as we come to it, we're going to be challenged. We're going to be stretched. In some places, we're even going to be shocked. Because it's not necessarily a book that on the face of it is obviously that helpful. Okay? So have that in mind. Firstly, we want to know the value. Secondly, that some people make mistakes, and that's okay. And thirdly, as we go through the book of James, you know, it might be difficult, but it'll be worth it. So let me just be clear then about the book of James. Before we begin this 10-week mission, uh, people often say the book of James is all about works, and Paul and the rest of the New Testament is all about faith. So so James and Paul and, and the other New Testament writers, they're kind of in opposition because they lock horns and they say things which are contradictory to one another. Totally and utterly not true. If we rightly understand James, we need to know from the outset that everything else that is taught in the New Testament, everything that Paul writes, everything that Peter writes, everything that John writes, these men that we know so much about, everything that they write is the framework of what James then goes on to apply. If you like that, that kind of doctrine which uh, Martin Luther had rediscovered that the Reformation made famous once more across Europe, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the springboard on which James goes on to, to teach the church through his letter. So everything we read isn't undermining that. It's in light of that. It's, it's illuminated by that. James truly was a man who had heard this phrase from the, from the, the lips of our Lord, if you love me, keep my commands. Okay, Jesus, they're not saying what's more important is that you keep my commands. Clearly not. He's saying, look, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. That there's, there's one thing which is a platform, a springboard to something else. So let's reread it together. Matt, thanks for reading it, but it's always good to get the word of God into us. And sometimes when we read it once, we, we miss it. So if you're there, James chapter 1, we'll read it together again, verses 1 to 11. James, a servant of God, and the Lord and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. Greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. Because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Oh, I was wrong. It's going to be easy, isn't it? It's so obvious what he's got to, got to say. No, it's going to be tough um, at times. Here's the first question that's probably on most of our lips, in our minds. Decent one to start off with when we're, we're coming to a series on the book of James. Who is this James who's writing to us? Who is he? Why should we listen to him? What are his credentials? Who is the author of this letter? We know a lot about Paul, the apostle, who writes loads of the letters. We read about his life in the book of Acts. We know a lot about Peter, 
who wrote a chunk of the New Testament. We, we read about him in the Gospels and in the, the book of Acts. We know a lot about John, who, who writes a couple of epistles. We read about him in the, in the uh, Gospels as well. But, but who is this James? Are we certain who this person is? And do we know anything about him? Now, I'm not going to spend a significant amount of time here. There are many theories as to who this James is. But there's one theory that... I say it is correct, and the others which are simply an attempt to undermine the authority of Scripture. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that or, or thought that. When people come to a book of the Bible, and the first thing that they want to do is to doubt. To doubt something about it, undermine it, put themselves in elevation above it. And one of the easy ways to do that is to say, well, it's not written by who you think it's written by. I'm not, I'm not sure you can trust what it says in God's Word, because it says it's by one person, but it's probably written by another. The attitude there is one of undermining God's word. And we come in this church with an attitude of God's, having God's word uh, in authority, trusting the Bible. And part of that is trusting that when it says it's written by someone, it is written by them. So we believe, at the very least, it's written by someone called James. But then you've still got the question, who is James? And you think to yourself, there's a few likely candidates. Well, basically, we're going to say it's James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of Jesus. And, and there's lots of reasons for assuming that. I'm going to give you three. Firstly, and I, and I think this is probably the most important one, the church through the centuries has believed that this James was James, the brother of Jesus. Wow, we're always being called, aren't we? We're always being called by big names and people who write books to get back to the early church. Let's do church like they did in the, in the good old days. You know, the first century, the second century, where they knew what church was about. Well... If we want to be like the early church, then the thing we'll do is believe that the book of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus. Because that is what the church believed at the start. It's what the church generally has considered to be the truth from then on. And it's only those people who have had desires in their hearts to undermine the word of God who have ever really questioned that and challenged it. So we believe that the book of James was written by James, the brother of Jesus, because do you know what? The church has always believed that, even from the earliest days when a lot of the people kicking around would have known James. Uh, and had there been any confusion, we would have said, oh, no, it's, it's James, Jesus' his brother. Okay, that's reason number one. Simple. Look at how he describes himself. Secondly, then, this is the second reason. He kicks in and he says, James. You think if it was Jesus, his brother, he'd say, brother of Jesus. No, he says, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, well, that doesn't really help your argument, does it, Sam? Well, no, it doesn't. But when you compare it to the, the letter of Jude, which starts like this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, you start to see some similarities. Now, James and Jude were two of Jesus's brothers that we find about in the New Testament. And it's almost like they've got this kind of family way of introducing themselves. Did you notice it? It's, it's almost identical. James says, James, a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. It's like they've got this family way of introducing themselves. They don't want to kind of play their own family heritage link with Jesus, but, but emphasize and realize that they are Jesus's servants over and above his brothers. Not making a fuss, just kind of stating the facts. So that's the second reason why this is just another little clue that actually the book of James is written by James, Jesus' brother. But here's my favorite one, probably, because, uh, uh, well, it's just the way that he says hello, the way that he says hi. Now, we're all used to writing letters, aren't we? Well, probably not, actually, but we're all used to being taught in school how to write letters. And if in school you were like me, you were taught you've got to start it 
dear sir slash madam, and you've got to finish it, yours sincerely or yours faithfully, or, you know, you've got to choose a certain kind of formula. And as we flick through our New Testament, we get kind of used to how Christians write letters, don't we? We get used to Paul basically using his, his introduction as a way of, you know, um, kind of praying and praising God. So we'll say, Paul, you know, servant in chains, an apostle, this, that, and the other, to this church there, that church there, grace to you, peace to you, the Lord's blessings be upon you. And, and he kind of goes off on one. Book of James. James, servant of God, to the church, greetings. It's the New Testament equivalent way of going, all right? It's very abrupt and actually it's very secular. It's very secular. He, he, he opens his letter in exactly the sort of way that you'd expect anyone in uh, New Testament times in, the, in the, the, the Greek world to open a letter. It's just simply greetings. And it feels out of place in our Bibles. Except if you dig around, you will find another place where a, a letter is written by Christians to one another and they have this same kind of abrupt secular um, introduction. And it's, um, it's the letter that's written as a result of the Council of Jerusalem in Acts, I want to say 14, it might be 15, you can look it up, you can disagree, Matt, I can't remember, I thought I'd noted it down, um, where the Council of Jerusalem, lots of the Christian leaders come together in the early church and they think about some stuff and then they write a letter to the Gentile churches in Antioch, Syria and Sicilia. And this Remember, James, sorry, the point of all of this is James, the brother of Jesus, is kind of in charge of that council. He's kind of in charge of the the church in Jerusalem. This is how that letter, recorded in the book of Acts, goes. To the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicilia, greetings. To To the Gentile churches, all right? It's got James's fingerprints on it. This is kind of like how he communicates. Do you, do you experience this at all in your life? Maybe there's somebody who emails you and you don't need to see their name in the, in the from thing. You just, you can just read the email. You know who it's from. Usually it's their signature. You know, they, they put something, you know, Christians, we put something nice, don't we? Every blessing, Sammy. Uh, uh, may the Lord's light shine upon you. Pastor Matthew. Something like that. Something beautiful like that. You know, sometimes you get text messages for people and different people texts. Text, text. They send you messages on your phone in different ways. And they use different language, they use different acronyms, and you can kind of understand who it's from, even if you lost their number. So, for example, if I get a text message that's got a lot of foreign characters in, E's with dots over the top of it, or backward C's or things like that, I know it's from my dad. He's the only person who knows how to find these um, Russian script characters on his phone and include them into to messages that he sends me. I know it's from him because of how it's been written. And so we know, thirdly, then, that the, the book of James is, is James, Jesus' brother, um, because it's, it just sounds like him. It's just got his vibe to it. There are three reasons. There's more reasons. Um, you can look them up if you like, but that's where we're going. We're, we're saying James, the brother of Jesus, has written uh, this uh, epistle to the church. Okay, that's the first question out of the way. Who's this from? Next question then to consider is, what does he want? What does this James, the brother of Jesus, actually want? Why is he bothering putting um, 
quill to parchment, pen to paper, and writing this letter to the church, what is he hoping to achieve by doing it? Well, he gets straight to the point, doesn't he? And that's one of the things you'll pick up about James as we go through. He's a guy who's there straight to the point. He's blunt. Sometimes people being pastoral will be, you know, there, there, oh, okay, yeah, I know how it is. Other people pastoral a bit more like, no, here's the deal, douche, deal with it. And James is in that kind of category, so he gets straight to the point. What do you want from us, James, now that you've written this letter, which is going to run to five chapters long? He says, consider it joy. Consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Okay, so he wants, he wants the church to be happy. He wants the church to be joyful, even in the face of difficult things. Um, but he says more than that. He says, because I want that to produce perseverance in your faith. But he says, I want more than that. I want that perseverance to finish the work, which is to mature and to complete you as Christians. He's writing to these people because he wants them to be mature. He wants them to be complete. In some translations, it says to be made perfect. I don't want you to lack anything, says James. That's what he wants. That's his ambition. Now that's still, well, for a start, it's quite a large ambition, but it's still a little bit vague. And I think he clarifies it then when we get to verse 5. He says this, uh, I want you to be mature and complete, not lacking anything. But if anybody lacks wisdom, ask God for it. I don't want you to, I want you to be perfect. I want you to complete. I don't want you to lack anything. Well, James, what could we lack? If you lack wisdom, Ask God for it. Right up front, this is his aim in the letter. This is why he's writing to the church. He wants them to be wise. If any of you can see it, this is what we've called the the series, Wise Up. Because that's James. He's kind of bold. He's in your face. He doesn't mince his words. And his entire letter is asking the church or calling the church or, or encouraging the church to wisdom, to wise up. To be full, to be perfect, to be complete Christians by being wise. Okay. First question, who is it from? It's from James, Jesus' brother. Simple. Second question, what does he want? He wants us to be wise. Third question, naturally, has got to be, yeah, but what is wisdom? Again, we speak about a lot of things in church, don't we? And they're kind of vague words. And to put flesh on them, to put legs on them is difficult. What is wisdom? You know, James, are you writing us to become wise just that, you know, intellectually? We'll know more things. We'll have grander thoughts in our minds. Are you encouraging us somewhere in chapter 3 to grow long white beards uh, and to come up with pithy phrases, axioms, you know, power proverbs that we can pontificate at certain times? What is wisdom? (sighs) Why did you really write this? Wisdom? in the Christian life, is not simply knowing lots and lots of clever phrases, is it? It's not having that white beard. Wisdom, and here's a phrase I hope we're going to come back to a number of times, is wisdom in the Christian life is gospel truth applied to life. Wisdom is gospel truth applied to life. Wisdom is gospel truth applied to life. For the Christian, it's not ever just about knowledge, is it? It's about knowing the right things and having that affect the way that we live. 
In the Grecian world, uh, the Greeks, wisdom was all about acquiring knowledge. You'd be the wisest guy if you knew the most, if you'd learned the most. But, but Jewish wisdom, wisdom in, in the Bible, it was, is never that. I mean, you go to the book of Proverbs and it's insanely practical, isn't it? It's a practical wisdom that James is after, which is why James is an extremely practical book, which is why Martin Luther had such a hard time with it, because he didn't like being told what to do. He thought it was all about what Jesus has done. But James says, no, 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 no. If you understand what Jesus has done, then you'll know what to do. I remember when Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. He wants us to be wise. He wants us to be full of the knowledge of God so that gospel truth can be applied to our lives. And that's really what we're going to see as we work our way through the entire book. Time and time and time again, he's, he's a bit like he's firing a machine gun. He's kind of spraying his fire all over the place. He'll go from one situation to the next to the next, seeing how Christians should act, how they should behave, how they should interact. Um, he's just unpacking that in loads and loads of different situations. He says, you know, this is how you should treat the mar- marginalized. Wisdom, applying gospel truth to daily living. This is, this, is, this is who you should show favor to, applying gospel truth to daily living. This is how you should handle disputes. This is how you should speak to different people. This is who you should listen to. This is how you stand firm when testing comes. Time and t- He's going to get practical life applications, real situations we find ourselves in. And the whole point of the book is be wise, be complete, be perfect as Christians by applying the knowledge of the gospel to each and every life circumstances. Eh? For, for, for e.g., Sam, what, what does that actually mean? Okay, well, we get a very, very quick e.g. Verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. The sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Now, two questions. How on earth is that gospel truth applied to life? And number two, isn't that really just teaching us that being poor is better than being rich? Is that what it's teaching us? Is what that, 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 that the thing that he wants the church to understand? You know, all you people who are poor, well done you. Well done for, for not having very much. But boo, hiss, we hate all you people who are prosperous. Because if that's what James is sowing, there's massive chunks of scripture he's going to have to throw away. About God blessing people. About prosperity coming to people. Of people having a lot and it being a gift to them from God. He's about to say every good and perfect gift that you have comes down from the Father uh, of lights in heaven. What are the Christians to understand? Okay, if God gives me something, it's good and it's from him. But you know what? I shouldn't want it because being poor is so much better than being rich. No, We've got to understand the gospel truth that's behind it that he's applying to real life. And here it is. In the gospel, and Matt, you did a great job of teaching us this last week. Well done. Thought I'd publicly encourage you. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, Matt was reminding us about our position in Christ, wasn't he? 
as we were looking at Philippians 3 and, and Paul saying, I count everything else as rubbish. I counted all as loss for the continued growth in knowledge that Jesus Christ is everything and my righteousness is from him. Matt was saying, do you know what? Positionally, we are in Christ. We are his. He is ours. His righteousness is what we depend on, what we lean on. If you want to know who we are now that we're in Christ, we look at him. Now, in our Christian lives, we still pursue Jesus. We want to know him more. But it's all about who we are in Christ. That's the solid, firm foundation. Okay, that's the gospel truth. That if you've trusted in Jesus, the number one thing about you now isn't your gender. It isn't your your, uh, nationality. It isn't whether you went to a decent school or you went to a rubbish school. It isn't whether you're good at certain sports. It isn't any of these things. It's the fact that you are Christ's. That you are co-heirs with Christ, that you are a child of God, adopted into God's family by Christ. That's the gospel truth. If you've trusted in Jesus, that's your status, that's your security. Now he says, now look at yourselves. Look at yourselves, those who are poor. Look at yourselves, those who are rich. How do you normally feel? How do you normally feel day-to-day life? Well, the poor probably say, we feel pretty rubbish. We feel pretty rubbish because we don't have much. Because we're hungry. Because we are suffering in this way or that way that's associated with poverty. The world looks at us and says, you don't have much. You're not worth much. The rich. How do you see yourselves? How do you view yourselves? Well, we feel all right. Because when we need something, we've got it. We've got decent friends as well who have got stuff as well. We never, ever have to feel awkward because we just surround ourselves with nice, rich people. And you know what? When the world comes knocking and the world comes looking and judges us, we feel we pass the test. Because they look at us and they see our wealth and they say, yeah, okay, you've made something of yourself. Diane, nice one, boy. Good one. James says, well, where's the wisdom in that? Where's the wisdom in that? Because that is shaky ground. Yeah, if you're rich and you're looking at your wealth and your status as, you know, I've made it, your identity, how you look at yourself, well, what of it? Wealth comes and goes. Just like a flower blossoms and then the sun comes and the, the blossom falls off and his beauty is destroyed, so the rich will fade even while they go about their business. You hear stories, in you, of people doing successful things and while they're doing that, It's all taken away. There's a tragic, absolutely heartbreaking story this week of a young Belgian footballer playing in the Belgian league, I think it was, and he's 24. He's represented his country. Most people think, yeah, footballer, nice one. You've made it. He had a heart attack. Three days later, he was dead while he was playing the sport that had brought him fame in his home nation. When we rely on these things, they, they, they just disappear. So what does James say? What's the wisdom that he's, he's telling the church to live out? He says, do you know what? Poor people, don't look at how the world views you. Don't attribute value to yourself by how the world views you, but actually take pride in your high position. Now, the only high position that he can be speaking about is their position in Christ. Because there is no other high position, the humiliated believers in humble circumstances, the poor, can take pride in. 
The only thing that they have this high position is in Jesus. He's saying gospel truth. Do you know what? Don't judge yourself. Don't value yourself how the world values you. Just just look at who you are in Christ. This is a self-worth issue. This is a self-value issue. When you look at yourself in the mirror, he says, rags don't mean a thing. You are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. You are co-heirs with him. You are adopted. You are a child of God. That is huge. That is immense. That's gospel truth applied to their lives. That each and every day that they look at themselves, they don't get knocked about. They don't take self-confidence knocks when they see how poor they are. They know who they are in Christ. And he says exactly the same, only in the opposite way to the rich people. He says, and you rich folk, you know, you take pride in your humiliation. What? Take pride in your humiliation? Are they all to expect and to rejoice when they lose their wealth? No, he's saying, at the same time, look how much you've got, then look at what you've got in Christ. And see how lowly without Christ you really are. Get some perspective, he says. Understand the gospel, the fact that you've been purchased by Christ at such a price. How precious you are that God gave his one and only son so that if you believe in him, you'll have eternal life, not to perish. There's your worth. And then just realize, I'm not worth anything without Jesus, even if I've got all the money in the world, all the wealth in the world. Do you see what he's doing? He's applying gospel truth to their lives, how they view themselves. What they think of themselves day in, day out, no matter what's going on around them. That's the wisdom. When you look at yourself in the mirror, don't make your assessment based on what the world says you're worth. But realize that you're that child of God. You're that co-heir with Christ. You're adopted into God's family. He starts off speaking about trials, doesn't he? And here's the problem with measuring our worth in any number of ways. Because we do measure our worth in different ways outside of Christ. That's why James needs to correct us and tell us not to. We measure it based on our wealth. Most of us don't have too much wealth. So we measure it in Facebook friends, Twitter followers, job security, job satisfaction, the number of family who flock to your house at annual holidays to celebrate and be with one another. Do they really bring satisfaction? Do they really bring security? Are they really a good indicator of value and worth? Because they are fragile things. Life is full of unexpected things. Stock markets collapse. Housing prices may go up or down. Maybe all of a sudden, 150 of the Twitter bots who have been following you and making you think that you're a really popular guy have been deleted. Maybe loads of the friends that you have on Facebook have got bored of your cat photos or baby photos. This is self-reverential because that's pretty much all I do, isn't it? Um, Your family or your kids, they grow up to such an age where they actually start spending Easter and Christmas and various holidays in other places. And that thing that you thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm all right. Twelve? I've got to cook for twelve people this Christmas. How great am I? Well, no, actually, because now I'm married and this Christmas I'm going elsewhere and now they're married and they're going this elsewhere and they've moved abroad, so they're not coming and now there's the two of you or the one of you. Are you all right anymore? Well, you are 
if you're applying gospel truth to your life. If you're taking James at his word and saying, do you know what, I'm going to look at my value and my worth in Christ, not in my circumstances and my surroundings. That's the wisdom applied. Okay? That's the example. Okay, so you know, look, I can't remember what time I started, so I have no idea how long I've been prattling on for. Um, we know James is written by Jesus' brother. Um, what else do we know? We know that he's writing to the church so that they become wise. We know that wisdom to James is gospel truth applied to daily living. And we know, for example, just a quick one off the top of our heads, that when we look at who we are in Christ, that so much uh, blows out of the water who we are and what we're worth when we measure it by any other metric. Next question. Where do we get this wisdom from? James, you want us to be wise. We can see the value in it because even in that quick illustration, it shows us how helpful it is to deal with life circumstances. Where do we get this wisdom from? Well, he says in in two places, really. And if you cycle back, we'll see it. Um, He says that you get it from God. Uh, We know that the work of the Holy Spirit is to open our eyes to the truth of Christ. And he says, do you know what? If you ask the Father for wisdom, if you ask the Father to know more of Jesus and what he has done by his Holy Spirit, he will further open your eyes to that. But he says you, we do this by asking God in the midst of trials. Now it's an odd one, isn't it? How we can open up his letter and he says, it doesn't matter what you're facing, guys. Trials of any kind, trials that have come at you from anywhere, we don't know what's going on, consider it pure joy. (sighs) It's easy for you to say, Archbishop of Jerusalem, I'm sure you're doing all right, apart from the fact that there was famine in Jerusalem and they were all suffering, I'm sure he suffered along with them. Um, But he says, you know, wisdom is going to come to you guys when you face trials, and in the face of those trials, you pray to God, God, Show me what's going on. Help me out, your Lord. Put this into perspective. Teach me about you. Teach me about your son. Help me put that into into effect in my life. Prayer in the midst of trials of all sorts, says James, is the perfect breeding ground for this kind of practical wisdom. Practical wisdom. And again, that... It's in the context of trials that we realize wisdom is more than just knowing, isn't it? So what if you just know something? Our heads are full of knowledge. I mean, I know how to differentiate a fraction, do I? As I say it, I'm thinking I've been taught it. I'm not sure I remember any more. You know, I know how to figure out how much energy the sun is putting out. Okay, that's one of the things I learned in my degree, and I'm pretty sure I could have a good stab at remembering how to do Am I wise? Well, no, not if I can't put that into practice and if that doesn't make a difference in my life because I'm going through something and who cares? James says, prayer in the midst of trials, people who are earnestly seeking God for an answer, God answers. God will show you something of the gospel, something of Jesus, something of the relationship between you and him and he will do that lavishly and generously. I love the words that are used to describe God there. He says, you know, if you're lacking wisdom, ask God who gives generously without finding fault and it will be given to you. Not a God who gives sparingly, not a God who's willing to give but goes, hmm, yes, 
okay, I was going to give you some wisdom in this situation, but really you've been in this situation before, haven't you? Um, so maybe sort it out this time yourself. No, a God who gives generously without finding fault. Sometimes we're afraid to pray because we are scared that the answer is going to be no. Generally, that's because we're praying for the wrong things. But we've got this encouragement here. It doesn't matter what you're going through, he says. Ask God for wisdom. Ask God for gospel truth applied to your life. And he will give generously without finding fault, without passing judgment about why you're in this situation even in the first place. That's a, that's a wonderful, wonderful encouragement from James. We get wisdom from God, says James. Ask and you will receive. But he does have this warning as well. It's a little bit confusing really because he says on the one hand, God gives generously without finding fault. But when you ask, make sure that you do it and you're not doubting because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from God. That person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Now, what's going on there? Because you've just said God is generous and he gives you that finding fault, but all of a sudden you're finding a fault, which means God's going to give you nothing. Well, I think we get, need to get into the mind of the double-minded person, that, that, what that person is doing when they're praying. Basically, James is saying this. There's times and there's situations when we're praying to God and we're asking God to help us, but we're using God kind of as a, as a a safety net. Uh, we're using God as a as a backup. I, so, I think sometimes, genuinely, we all do this. We keep him in the back pocket behind a little piece of glass that says, break in case of emergency. The God is only real to us. God the Father is only someone we go to when we're in difficulties. We live all of our lives thinking, do you know what? I've got this covered. I can, I can make this work until something goes wrong. And we say, uh, God, you're the generous giver. Help me out in this situation, please. God is not in the business of helping us keep our idols on a pedestal. That's what the double-minded person is doing. They're putting their hope and their trust and everything into something other than God. And when trials come and they rock the world of that idol, they say, oh God, put that idol back up on a pedestal, please. I'm double-minded. I'm trusting in two things. I want you to fix stuff, but really I want my life to be about something else. You know, think about a close relationship, for example. A close relationship. We've been encouraged by John recently to be working on gospel friendships, to have real deep relationships. But we've been warned as well, haven't we, that sometimes our relationships can become idolatrous. They're the place we go to for security. They're the place we go to for satisfaction. They're the ones that we worship rather than God the Father in heaven. They mean everything to us. And all of a sudden, oh, we have an argument. One of you has an illness. And our whole world starts to come apart because we think if we can't have this one relationship, then woe is me, I am ruined then we say, oh God, thanks. I forgot you're a God who can fix all things. Sort this out. The promise from the book of James is that God's going to say, no, none of it, not a chance. I'm not going to secure your idols, things that you've put in place over me. How double-minded of you, how unstable. How like a person who can't even stand up straight running to and clinging to anything and grabbing at anything. No, trust in God. 
prayer isn't so much um, the medicine that we take when something goes bad. Prayer is supposed to be the expression of who we already are. When the trials come, says James, that prayer that comes out of faith will be answered, but it comes out of what's already there. Not behind that glass screen that says break in case of emergency. Not as an opportunity to keep our idols installed on the pedestal. Oh, Lord God, my job isn't safe. And I don't know where I'd be without my job. Fix that. He says, do you know what? If you're trusting more in that than me, I'm not going to fix it. Because that is a wrong situation to be in. Encouragement on the other side, of course, is that for those people who are trusting in God, who offer those prayers in faith, well, they might not see it answered in terms of the job being kept or what have you, but God will show you. God will show you in that circumstance how Jesus is enough, how Jesus is more than enough. He'll give you that gospel wisdom that will allow you to keep on living even a joyful life. I mean, that's a strong claim. James is making, isn't it? Count it as joy. That's something we can put to the test. Okay, James, I'll take you at your word. I'll pray to God for wisdom in every single circumstance. The many trials that come my way. Let's see if I come joyful at the end. I think James has experienced enough of in his life that he, he's, he's bold enough to say that. He says, go through everything. And if you offer that prayer in faith, God, make me wise in this circumstance. Show me how to live. Show me more of Jesus and how that makes a difference to what is going on. He says at the end of that, actually, that's what will give you joy. That's what will give you joy. Not your idol being caught as it's fallen off, fallen off the little table. That's not going to give you joy if it's put back up there because it's still unstable. He says, you know what? Finding who you are in Christ, what Christ has done for you, that's where the security is. I'm really hoping as we go through the book of James and as we look at a series of really practical things in the Christian life, you know, how we stand up to temptation and trials, how we treat people who have less than us, how we speak to one another, how we resolve disputes, how we look forward to heaven, all these sorts of things. I'm really, I'm, I'm really hoping that we're going to learn truths, truths that will stand us in good stead for the trials and the temptations that will come. James is an honest book. He doesn't say it's all going to be hunky-dory in the end. Well, no, he kind of does say that because he's got the right perspective. But he's saying, oh, it's not like uh, three steps to having, you know, jolliness. No, he is saying that. Um, He's saying, he's, he's honest. He says, you will face many trials. And my prayer is that we would be a wise church, a church that is growing in wisdom, a church that is growing in the gospel and our knowledge of Jesus, that we're able to put that into practice in so many situations as we go through the book of James, that no matter where we are, where we find ourselves, that ultimately our biggest need is for more of him, for his goodness, for his love in our hearts, in our minds, and lived out in our lives. That's what, we, that's what we want to do as we go through the book of James. That we come at the end of it and we won't think, oh, what a strawy epistle. Ugh. Still, maybe we'll figure out what he meant by that by the end. Um, we won't be like that. We won't think of it as a, as a book devoid of evangelical character, but we'll see it as a book of evangelical character applied and lived out and fleshed out. 
one of the things we always say as a church that we want to leave transformed, not informed. And that's exactly what James wants to do. He wants to change the way we live because the gospel is powerful enough to do that, to change how we live each and every single aspect of our lives. I'm going to pray. The band are going to come up and we're going to sing a song in response. Lord God, we thank you for the honesty that there is there in the book of James. Lord God, that things will be difficult for us. Lord God, that some of us will be have-nots. There's no sugarcoating of that. But Lord God, I thank you that he gives us this hope. That even in the midst of not having, even in the midst of struggles and um, temptations and disputes and feuds, Lord God, that you are a generous God who we can come to and we can pray to and a God who will illuminate, who will shine that light upon Jesus and what he has done on our behalf and what that means for us. Lord God, and that no matter what we go through, we can be a people who have joy because Jesus has done enough. We say it so simply, Lord God, Jesus has done it all. He's enough. Lord God, we pray as we work through example after example after example in the book of James that we see that that rings true time and time again. Lord God, and as we see it in the book of James, Lord, I pray that it would be lived out in our lives too. Lord, because we all go through things. We're all going through things right now. Pray you'd give us the boldness to pray. Show us, Lord. Show us how you are still king. Show us how Jesus is still reigning. How he's still above the circle of the earth, as Matt read at the start, Lord God. Show us how he's still on his throne, even though it seems like everything sucks. Lord God, and help us to then see the joy. See the joy in having that Christ being united with him and calling him ours. Help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.